Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. If you like my show, you're going to love the Jordan Harbinger Show on Podcast One. This week, Jordan joins former NBA Lakers superstar and Oscar Award winner Kobe Bryant for an unforgettable conversation that you do not want to miss. Check out the Jordan Harbinger Show every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is a continuation of the Division Capsule Podcast, as I call them. They are a combination off-season review and season preview on the entire division. This time it's the Central. And my guests for the Central Division are Nate Duncan of the Dunked On Basketball Podcast, something I am very familiar with, and Dan Feldman of NBC's Pro Basketball Talk. And There was a lot to get to with these teams, even though some of them stayed pretty still, but you know how the passage of time affects it. And so we go go in a lot of interesting directions, give plenty of time to all five franchises. And this episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus. You can also check out the hashtag sportsnet challenge where I'm a part of it and I'll give a status update in the actual show. Episode runs about an hour 20. Lots of good stuff in here. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Thanks for having sure, me. Sure, it's great for having us. Uh, I got it in <laughs> yes. before you could talk over me. Finally, finally, I've been able to get revenge. I guess it's not really revenge for uh, all the times I've, <laughs> I've thanked you guys for coming on, and then you guys both talked at the same time or didn't. Or This isn't revenge. This is you trying to make it awkward on whatever side you're on. Yeah, that, 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 that's pretty true. But, you know, you the three of us have done this podcast for a few years now, and it is interesting in the context of, you know, like how this division has changed over the last couple of years. But we're going to keep the format largely the same, though, of course, that's just a, a mechanism to talk about all of the things that we need to talk about in the Central Division. And I want to start with Dan, but we'll, of course, it's a group conversation about this, is just a basic one of, of these five teams, who do you think got better and who do you think got worse? Uh, I think the Bulls got better, adding Thaddeus Young, adding Sadoransky in the short term, and even in the long term, I think adding Kobe White fits in really well with the direction they're going. Uh, so I think the Bulls got better. I think everybody else is very close uh, to similar to where they were last year. I think the Pistons and Cavaliers will get better. I think the Pacers will get slightly worse. And the Bucks. I'm just throwing up my hands having no idea. Well, so Pistons, a team that we haven't talked about that much, you think they will get better? Like, they like got better and be better are kind of different things to me sometimes. <laughs> like, because yeah. like, got better is like, okay, you look at the talent on the roster, you look at the resources available. Yeah, you know, the, they've got more talent here, but be better. I don't know because I'm just, I don't think that Blake Griffin can perform at the same level due to health and age as he did last year. Yeah, I mean, uh, I agree. I, th- I think there's a decent chance that Blake Griffin doesn't have another year in his career a- as good as that one going forward. I think he's had at least one better in the past. Um, in terms of got better, I think they got better by adding Tony Snell. Now, that came at a long-term cost. It was an extra year, but they really just needed a credible wing, and I think he is one. Uh, Derek Rose, there's the potential to get better through that, but he's a a risky signing and losing Ish Smith, uh, you probably lower your floor and raise your ceiling on that. So overall expected value, we can call that one similar. Um, one reason I think they could be better, Reggie Jackson being healthier uh, and in a contract year, Andre Drummond being in a potential contract year. I think Reggie Jackson in particular 
has so much to do with where this team goes just because of how lacking they've been without him. When he's been healthy and looking athletic, the Pistons have been pretty good for what they are. They look like a real safe playoff team when Reggie Jackson's at that level. When he's not, that's when they've especially struggled. I, I think he's kind of done as as a like good quality starting level of player. I'm not sure. I think, you know, contract year, uh, he was not really healthy throughout last season. Uh, you could see him getting healthier and healthier as the year went along. He played all 82 games, which is kind of incredible, uh, considering where he was to start the year. And you could see him just looking more and more athletic at the contract year motivation. I think we might get one more solid starting quality year from him. So you're saying he's in a contract year? He might be in a contract year. Um, so I, mean, so I, I, yeah, I, I had, ahead, I had sorry, something Dan. I wanted to ask about the the Pistons for you, Dan, is they added front court depth. And I think materially this year, getting Markeith Morris, we'll see how healthy he is, getting Christian Wood, who I really like a lot, and then Seku, who barely played in Summer League, but I really liked him as a prospect. I was shocked that he fell as far as 15. And really, the unlike in the guard rotation where Rose functionally replaces Ish Smith and Snell, you know, he fills somewhat of a gap, but they did have Ellington as a late season replacement and, and, and some other things. I'm wondering how you feel that depth will matter, because this is still the Blake Griffin, Andre Drummond show, but having more capable players should help. I agree. I mean, Blake Griffin was really run down uh, by the playoffs last year, missed time in that Milwaukee series. And so you can't put that same load on him to create all the offense. Uh, Derek Rose can create. Markeith Morris has more offensive firepower than the guys they'd been bringing off the bench. Uh, Joe Johnson might be able to fill in there, although that probably means Christian Wood wouldn't make the team. And I feel like the three of us uh, are much higher in Christian Wood than most people. I think it'd be a shame if he doesn't make the team, but it it looks like it's headed that way. Uh, Probably one of the most interesting final roster spot battles in the NBA between Beasley, Johnson, and, and Wood. What a perfect encapsulation of the Pistons being so boring <laughs> that, that their most interesting thing, and you're right, is that 15th roster spot. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, Did you say Beasley, though? Beasley, they're not going to sign. Oh, they didn't uh, ever actually sign him? They didn't sign him, and then so Joe Johnson was kind of instead. Oh, wow. how so, did that so, happen? Was, so, so in the uh, words, in the yeah. words of somebody, wait, 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 we had a deal. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that was mutual. I don't know. If, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, supposedly okay. Beasley turned down guaranteed money in China. And I don't know if that's still available to him. Maybe he decided he'd rather, he could still get that and would rather go there. Uh, but there's also the rule in China about signing players facing suspension for drugs in other leagues. So I don't know how that applies to him. Uh, if he'd have to sit out five games there, if he can't be signed all, I, I don't know. There's a lot on that one. I just don't know. To me, the most interesting of these discussions of who got better is with the Indiana Pacers. I mean, the Pacers have, you know, they've had, they made the playoffs the last two years and Oladipo really broke out in the 17-18 season and then suffered the injury, which will still affect him for part of the 1920 season. And I'm guessing he's going to be under load management for most of, if not the entire 1920 regular season. But even outside of that, the overhaul there, I mean, especially because a lot of those players have been a part of discussions in other places. So we'll talk about Thad Young on the Bulls soon enough. But bringing in Brogdon, Jeremy Lamb, Justin Holliday, TJ Warren, and but losing some of the key members of this team. I mean, Bojan Bogdanovich, Thaddeus Young, Corey Joseph, Wes Matthews, like, it, who was the replacement, incidentally, for Victor Oladipo originally. Like, I, my instinct is that in terms of personnel, I think they're going to be worse. You know, I did a whole podcast on this uh, with Jay Michael yesterday, and I 
started off thinking, you know, and when we did their offseason grades, I was like, yeah, you know, I'll give them a C plus. Like they got similar quality of players and they got younger. So what happened? But number one, I mean, they don't, while they have more guys who can create, in theory, none of those guys are really established even number two options uh, on a team. And Oladipo, like you, I don't expect him to contribute that much. I'm very concerned about the return from that quad tendon injury. We've only really had one other guy, Tony Parker, who had that. He was old enough that it's hard to compare there. But you know, I think it's going to be kind of similar to guys' patellar tendon injuries, just in terms of the rehab. You can't really work that quad until you, you've got the tendon fix and so then you get a lot of atrophy there so and he's so reliant on that otherworldly athleticism in that one awesome season that he had so and then clearly they're going to take a step back defensively without Thad Young and without uh, someone to guard the best guys on the perimeter uh they don't really have anyone to guard big wings on this team uh I don't think the Sabonis and Turner in the front court thing is going to work that well either so the more I thought about it I started getting more pessimistic about them because, well, they do have a bunch of guys who can score a little bit and distribute a little bit. Uh, You know, they don't have that one guy that really bends the defense to them. So I could see them potentially being below average on both ends. A lot is going to depend on what Miles Turner can do defensively to keep them from falling off. I think they were third or fourth in defense last year. They were pretty good last year defensively with Miles Turner and Sabonis on the court together. You know, some of that is being a little more selective about when to deploy that, but they used that plenty and were really just walled off the paint and forced teams to shoot like eh, efficiency jumpers over and over. And uh, so that worked well. I have more questions about that pairing offensively. Yeah. Um, I think they took a step back just because I, I think they, I mean, they got younger and I agree with you that they're similar in terms of player quality. But I think to get younger, they had to take a slight step back, and they really lose a lot of identity. The team, the last couple of years, really knew how they wanted to play. They knew the slower pace they wanted to play at, the physicality, the defense. They were really committed to that. It's going to take some time for this group to discover how they want to play and to build chemistry together. And you know that's going to, I think, come at the expense of how good they'll be next season. One way of thinking about this is, in the minutes that Oladipo didn't play last year, so using cleaning the glasses filter, that's about 5,400 possessions. They were a positive net rating team, which is really impressive. But the Pacers did that through being very strong on defense. They were 79th percentile on defense, and then they were 43rd percentile on offense. And when you look at the changes in personnel, they lost two key parts of their point guard rotation. They did replace Malcolm Brogdon, but Brogdon's best success to me in Milwaukee came when he played with another creator most notably Giannis but it could be other guys and when Oladipo is not on the floor he'll have to do that maybe Aaron Holiday steps up a little bit and they're putting a lot on those kinds of guys shoulders especially when Oladipo's out but there are going to be a lot of those minutes and 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 also as as much respect as Nate McMillan deserves and he did a wonderful job coaching this team the last couple years they've they've been a much better defensive team and all that the one, some of the offensive creativity challenges this year are not the type of success that he has had so far in Indiana, and I have less confidence that he will be able to solve those problems than the ones that he's much better at solving and has throughout his coaching tenure. Yeah, I, I, and I think there's uh, – J. Michael talked about this on my show the other day that you know there could be uh, a little bit of heat on McMillan here who wanted more playmakers in theory – um, I mean, I think just so much depends on Oladipo. If he can get back to 
being really good at an all-star level, then I think these guys could make some noise. Otherwise, you know, I think they're a bunch of parts of guys that I like in some respects, but you put them all together and you just don't have that one guy uh, that everything orbits around offensively and, you know, defensively other than Miles Turner, they're decidedly average. So I'm, uh, the more I think about them, the more I have some concerns and I echo your thoughts uh, on McMillan to see whether you know, this is going to be need to be a team that moves the ball a lot. They're going to need to, you know, cause these aren't the guys where, Hey, we're just going to line up at the line of scrimmage and just bring Malcolm Brogdon off a pick and roll every time. Like he doesn't have that level of talent. They need to move the ball from side to side. They don't have a ton of passing. McMillan's systems have not usually emphasized ball movement. They're going to have to run a lot of stuff through the elbows with Turner and Sabonis. So they're going to need some additional creativity this year. One thing I tried to grapple with a little bit is if they had just brought back those core players, how good would they be relative to last year? Like that group that is young, Bogdanovich, Wes Matthews, uh, Darren Collison, the group was getting a little older where maybe yeah. even if you kept them, you would expect some decline. Right. I mean, I, I don't, I actually, that's why I gave their off season, despite the fact that they might be worse this year, a better degree, because at least they got some guys who, if Oladipo comes back, it could work for them, right? But but if they re-sign, now Young, you know, only two guaranteed years, maybe you could bring him back. Bogdanovich in his 30s for four years, 73 million, that seems a, a little rich. Uh, you know, they do have some young talent on this team, so, and they have some guys who are on decent contracts now that might be movable if it doesn't work out. So I think they did get better in an overall sense, because I agree with you, they're going to take a big step back, regardless, Young and Bogdanovich both had maybe career years last year, and they were clearly going to decline, and so they didn't want to pay for those career years. And there was a feeling that with their offensive struggles in the playoffs the last couple of years, they couldn't uh, continue to rely on Thaddeus Young at the four. They needed to get more of an offensive option there. Um, so I, I think this team has at least some flexibility in a couple of years and, and younger guys. And the, the other good thing is they have a lot of depth, so I think their second unit will be good. And they have... A bunch of guys who are young enough that you know maybe a couple of them could really pop it and take a, a step forward to a new level. One thing that I want to keep an eye on with the Pacers this year is for eighteen nineteen they were below average, barely, but below average in terms of points per possession in the half court. Ninety four, basically, offensive rating in those circumstances. But they also were twentieth in the league in proportion of their possessions that were in the half court. You want you know you want to run because the transition is more effective than being in the half court, and that is one way around this. But they're going to have to actually do it and execute in those circumstances. So I want to keep an eye on that. One thing I wanted to ask you, Dan, and I've been grappling with this kind of in, in line with the production part of it is what do you think is their best five lineup when you know let's because because so many coaches rarely turn to this until their back is against the wall so let's say the Pacers are the first round and they're down 3-2 in a winnable game six who's on the floor for them yeah that's tough uh so Oladipo Brogdon for sure uh you know I feel like a lot of times you get to this lineup you downsize but just talent level I think you got to put Miles Turner out there I'd like to squeeze Jeremy Lamb in there and then man it's it's tough for who to put at power forward uh, I mean, Sabonis is the best player, but we've just been talking about these difficulties with two big men. If they've been playing this way and you're down and it's not quite working, uh, ugh, I guess TJ Warren? I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, Warren, I mean, he's a, just a total enigma with whether he's going to be able to shoot the ball. He had one of the greatest improvements 
one season that we've ever seen shooting the three-pointer last year. So is that going to continue? He only played about half the year. Uh, if that's the case, maybe him. But he's got some weakness defense. I think it's all going to depend on the matchups. Uh, you know, and is it going to be Sabonis and Turner? Uh, you know, we'll see how, how that goes throughout the season. But yeah, they they don't really have. You know, they've got a three and they've got a five that they can play at the four. You know, so I, I'm uh, I am a little skeptical there. I, I would very much like to see them trade Miles Turner or Sabonis for somebody who can fit into that spot more comfortably. Agreed, but we're at a yeah. real tough point for trading Sabonis because now there's a very limited window for negotiating an extension. Maybe Bird Wright's in the cap holder have some interest to a team so there can be some value there. But yeah, it's a resource allocation issue in some ways. I mean, Sabonis had a wonderful year. You know, He was in serious contention for me for sixth man of the year for a lot of it. And had you know didn't do anything wrong, but also is going to be playing put in an interesting position. I mean, his rookie year in Oklahoma City, he played power forward, albeit in a different system with a different coach and a different player. Then he's gotten a lot better, but it didn't work out particularly well. So we're going to have to keep an eye on that, and that's something that will be an important part of of this season for them. And it's something that came up. I mean. I've used the Warriors in the conference finals and the NBA finals as a good example here, but the Pacers, what's so striking for them and the Blazers and a couple other teams is just how few forward options they have. It's not even a circumstance of, you know, Sabonis being that much better, though I think he's a a, a damn good player. It's also just, you know, if you're comparing him to TJ Warren or Doug McDermott, Bataze probably can't play the four next to him. TJ Leaf, I mean, if Leaf has a breakout season, maybe, maybe, maybe there's an option. But the lack of emphasis on forward-sized players means that they just have fewer options to fill that role. Yeah, and I'm not sure who they were supposed to sign. I mean, uh, maybe you could say they could have focused in on like an Alfaruk Aminu type, but I think they just really, they, they kind of promised Sabonis that he was going to get the shot here. And like I said, you know, with Oladipo coming back, this is kind of a transition year for this team. I think they they wanted to just get some talent on here and see if it could get figured out. But yeah, that does strike me as a big weakness. Um, the the more we yeah. talk about the Pacers, I I feel uh, more strongly, and I I did the same thing as you, Nate, which was hey, I kind of think they brought broke even. And then the more you talk about it, and the more you look at it, it really does seem like they're going to take a step back next year. Like, everything we've said keeps pushing me further and further in that direction. Yeah. Well, I mean, they won 48 last year. So, I mean, there, there's no way they're getting to that, I don't think. With, uh, I spent with, but, with but Oladipo's even, question marks about how long it's going to take him and how much he's going to play. I agree with you. It would take a lot for them to get there. Cleveland is – and so another part of this, and Cleveland's a good example of it, it's, you were talking about getting better and being better. That can go in the personnel element of it and then also just how much time you get with that personnel. And Cleveland, why there's such a good articulation of it is Kevin Love. So Cleveland, in terms of personnel, if you just looked at roster spots and all that, I think you could make an argument that they might actually be worse just because they're going to be relying on young players again. And, you know, if Darius Garland is going to be in their starting lineup replacing, even if it's replacing some of their other flawed guards, they're just going to be so young and young guards are almost always terrible defensively. But Kevin Love will hopefully play more for them this year since they still have him than he did last year so I could see the overall pendulum swinging in the way of positive especially because it seems almost impossible though I say that now and then wonder how it could be any different for them to be worse defensively than they were last year when they were the one of the if not the worst defensive team in NBA history yeah I don't really see how they get much better <laughs> frankly well, maybe well, maybe John, John John Beeline uh 
Well, I'm talking about defensively, though. I mean, oh, it, oh, like, just I don't think yeah. I don't think no. Kevin Love. <laughs> no, I don't think so... Kevin Love helps that. Uh, I mean, I mean, maybe I think John Tris- Beeline, Tristan Thompson yeah. being healthier and better this year. Yeah, that, that's a big way. That that's goes. a good point. Yeah, although you you wonder again how long some of these vets uh, are going to be on their team. Yeah, it, that'll be interesting to see. I mean, you imagine Garland and Sexton are just going to start together because you know who else is part of this group long term? They might as well see whether that works, and they're talking about them as the new Lillard and McCollum. And, uh, you know, just that that's like, that's the new small guard combo, the way Joe Dumars and Isaiah Thomas used to be. Uh, I don't see a Joe Dumars-like or even a C.J. McCollum-like defender in, in this group. So, yeah, I mean, you would have to imagine that they're going to be among the worst defenses in basketball, if not the worst. Um, but, you know, if Love can play 65 games, they might get to passable offensively, especially if the improvement... Sexton showed over the second half of the season holds in terms of the be better um, defensively, maybe more so, but just overall too, um, or more so than offensive. But overall, I think we've somewhat forgotten about how much dysfunction this team had early in the year uh, because they kind of settled into being like regular bad through most of the year. But with J.R. Smith publicly rebelling, uh, Kyle Korver, there was a report that he was told by management he'd get trade over the summer than wasn't. You know, I'm sure he was not in the best mood about being back in Cleveland after that. Uh, there was everything with Teron Liu and then Larry Drew, like not wanting to take the job and then having to talk him into it. There was an assistant coach suing the team. Like there was so much swirling around and, it, and they knew they'd be bad. And they were coming from a place where they were competing for a championship just before this. Like the malaise and the, the attitude that you must feel when you're in that situation. Uh, I don't think that that will be as bad next year. So 25 wins for these guys then? <laughs> Might be pushing I, I it a little really bit, but it, yeah. what, what were they at, like 19 they last were 19 year? 19 last year. Yeah. Yeah, and they uh, they earned that 19 too. <laughs> oh, baby, did they? Yeah. It, yeah, but that's interesting to think about. Who will win the highest, uh, have the highest increase in wins this year? And it's probably down to between like Chicago and Cleveland, right? I mean, to me, Chicago's the pretty heavy favorite there. Chicago only won 22 games last year. Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, that's like... Uh, yeah, they, they do seem like they would be the, the favorite there because that's only three more than Cleveland, and I think they got a lot better than Cleveland. Um, yes. I, I and think I the think so- they already were a lot better full, than Cleveland. Not to go full Kevin Pelton again, but the Suns have a lot of room to improve too. And now that they have just a credible point guard, I think that can make a lot of difference just in terms of their one-loss record. Yeah, that's possible. And I mean, you could also see a team. You could also see a team like the Lakers or the Mavericks. You know, that had kind of a weird year that has talent, and see a team like that make some significant growth. But certainly a possibility. The Knicks think they'll be in this discussion. I'm sure they do. <laughs> Good luck with that. But uh, so I think because the other two teams we can talk about in this context, but we can also talk about them in, in the, the second question, which is moves that stood out. And Nate and I have spent so much time talking about the Bucks and we our opinions about the biggest decision they made was Malcolm Brogdon. I mean, they did a lot of other things in terms of retaining Brooke Lopez, retaining George Hill, but the decision not only to let Brogdon go, but to get a first-round pick in two seconds for their trouble from another team in this division, the Indiana Pacers. Dan, how are you feeling about that at this moment, given the Bucks' overall situation? I don't know. So I wrote up the Bucks offseason grade at a pro basketball talk uh, a few weeks ago. And it was basically just the whole thing was just me like trying to grapple with this decision of Malcolm Brogdon because it might make sense. It might not. The Bucks are at such an important place in their building, right? They could spend the luxury tax or not. Uh, 
they are one year away from Giannis being super max eligible or two years away from him hitting free agency. You could win a championship next year or the year after. Like, you are right there. I think this team is good enough. I thought they were basically good enough last year, didn't get the right breaks. I do think they needed that experience of losing in the playoffs uh, to go through that for Giannis to see firsthand what it takes to compete at that level. I think they're primed now. And then they let Malcolm Brogdon go. And Brogdon is a really good player and matters a lot to them. And if you look at it, the simplest reason why they let him go is because it kept them out of the luxury tax. And that would be so terrible if that's the reason. And it looks like it might be the reason. But I think you can also make a case that even if, you know, you're us and just trying to spend other people's money, which is very easy to do, that it was still a sound move for building the roster because they got so much. They got the first round pick and the second round pick from the Pacers. They didn't have to pay Malcolm Brogdon $85 million over four years. I mean, that contract could encumber whichever team has him so much. He's had injury problems. He came in, he slipped in the draft because of injury problems. Uh, he's a little bit of an older uh, player when he came in the league after spending so much time at Virginia. So there's a case there, especially considering uh, this opened the door for the Bucks to get some solid, cheap wings. They signed Wesley Matthews. They signed Kyle Korver. Uh, they have Sterling Brown and Pat Connaughton on the roster. Like Maybe this all sets up. To me, it really just depends on what they do with that draft pick. If they don't trade it, if they don't do anything, if they're not willing to go into the tax and are just sitting on it, like the Cavs sat on that Nets pick, I think it'd be a huge mistake. But you have a tool to get better, and I'm willing to, for now, give them the benefit of the doubt that they have put themselves in a better position. We'll just have to see if they actually do the things to make it better for them where they are now because they're a team that absolutely should be prioritizing the present and it gets real murky when you let a talented expensive player go in a time you should be prioritizing the present yeah there's uh i think two schools of thought there i mean the other thing you could say too is they wouldn't have gotten west matthews if they had re-signed brogdon Mm -hmm. probably because he's that's the big appeal is that he's going to start there they got him for the moon that's a pretty good contract so i mean really what it boils down to is you know with They'd be willing to pay the tax later if, you know, using that first round pick and that second round pick. Can you get a player by trading, say, Ursan Ilyasova and some other flotsam who would be even better than Brogdon with a first round pick and a second round pick? I mean, those picks kind of seem to go a long way all of a sudden. Uh, and Brogdon is the injury risk. And maybe by making that trade, you get a guy who's not on uh, as onerous of a contract, potentially. Uh, so... Uh, someone who also might be a little bit younger or has a little bit more upside from a scoring standpoint. So I like I feel conflicted on it. Certainly, there are plenty of the hallmarks of tax shirking here, but I'm not ready to just shovel dirt on them quite yet because they did get that return. If they just let him go, don't get that return. I'm right there with you, Dan. Or, or I, I not to put words in your mouth, but you know I. I would echo your concerns even more about the fact that they have a chance to bring Giannis back and they're not paying the tax. One other consideration. Oh, go ahead, Dan. The biggest thing that swings this for me in terms of it being like, I mean, I, it still leaves a sour taste in my mouth and I've, I've made that very clear before is the injury risk. And there's always this situation that a player who has the history that Malcolm Brogdon does that their current team or now in this case, prior team, knows a lot more about the day-to-day, knows a lot more about where this might be going than we do for sure and likely than the the new team does. And so that's the biggest way that I think my interpretation of this could be wrong is that he just 
there's less tread on those tires. There's a greater risk that he's just going to have to miss, you know, 10 to 20 games a season with a risk that there's something bigger happens and that he misses a lot more time. And that would hurt, you know, even in a team with Giannis at the, at the forefront, if you, if you have Brogdon going to need him to play. And I think that's an important part of this. But then the other element that sticks with me a lot is, yeah, you know, Malcolm Brogdon, that contract four years, 85 million, that's a pretty big overpay. It also seemed to me like they overpaid George Hill. Hill, I loved that he was able to really bring it back and have a nice playoff run, but he's not as good a player as Malcolm Brogdon. His pretty immediate track record hasn't been particularly good as well. And so for me, not giving Malcolm Brogdon 20 million and giving George Hill 10, not over the same duration of time, but that makes me a little queasy too. Yeah, uh, that's so that ties into what I was going to say is one reason that it's a little worrisome to lose Brogdon. Eric Bledsoe has not been good the last two postseasons. He was better uh, this year than the previous year, but he was not good. He was not good enough. And is, is that just a small sample? Is he just struggling at the wrong time in a way that's not likely or necessary to continue? Or is there something fundamental about his game where you get the pressure of the playoffs, you get uh, the way it works going against the same team over and over, that it just doesn't hold up? And yeah, Malcolm Bragdon, I've liked more how he settled in at shooting guard. I think he's been good there. Uh, but I also think, you know, he could still wind up a good NBA point guard and maybe you're going to re- really regret that Bledsoe extension and compounding it by losing somebody else who could have been your point guard. I think everyone who's been complaining about that Bledsoe extension needs to look at what uh, all the other point guards got. This, I mean, Ricky Rubio got more money than Eric Bledsoe, right? I mean, clearly, uh, I think even if he can't deliver in the playoffs, it's that's still not a terrible deal for him. Oh, so, so, I, so I, I don't think it's bad value. I yeah. think the case against it is that, like I've been saying, this is a team that needs to prioritize the present. And if Eric Bledsoe isn't the right point guard, you need the flexibility to be able to get that point guard. Maybe you have the flexibility by having him on this extension. Maybe you can use that extension to trade him uh, because of what his salary is now for matching. Maybe that's the way. I'm just saying it's it's important to find that point guard you can win a championship with. And the last two postseasons, Eric Bledsoe hasn't looked like that guy. That kind of I, I kind of separated that out from the moves that from moves that interested you, but I, I, I'll throw it to both of you. And I have a couple that I definitely want to talk about if you guys don't get to them. But so any a move that was made over the offseason could be a signing, could be a draft pick, could be a trade from these five teams that stood out to you. We can start with Nate if you have one that comes to mind. The Cleveland Cavaliers drafting Darius Garland. Yes, when they already had Colin Sexton, I like Garland was clearly the best guy left on the board. Uh, the I think that Cleveland, from a talent perspective, even falling to five, uh, getting him is pretty good because the Hawks obviously didn't need a point guard a- ahead of them, and they could easily have gone with you know a Jarrett Culver or one of these other wings. They have a huge need on the wing, but their evaluation was that Garland is better. And yeah, you know whether those he and Sexton can play together or not. I don't think Sexton was so good last year that you wouldn't draft someone at a similar position, uh, even if it turns out they can't play together. So I, I thought that that was a, a really good move. We'll see whether it works out. Garland has the health issues as well, obviously. But I think there's a, a feeling that he can be this unbelievable ISO scorer and setup man. And you know those players are, are very difficult to find, that player type. You know, I don't think there was any, you know, there are solid wings that were available, but they just need talent with this group. And so I, I thought that that was, was really solid there. By them, we'll see whether that ends up being right and the evaluation of Garland was correct. But I thought not just treating Colin Sexton as, all right, we got point guard solved. This is a sacred cow. 
uh, and drafting Garland, uh, I thought was a, a great idea for Cleveland. I agree 100%. Uh, I know you guys were higher on Garland also. Uh, I had him number three on my board. Uh, do you guys remember where you had him? Yeah, I think I had him number three uh, as well, and uh, Kobe White was number four for me. I, I definitely had Garland three. I think I had Kobe White four, so we can talk about him a little later. And th- the idea of a sacred cow, I think, is a really important one to, to spend some time on here, and it's a team-building mistake that a lot of teams have dealt with. Phoenix, I think, had a, had a really big problem here where they maybe part of the reason they passed on De'Aaron Fox was because they thought they had point guard locked up in, of all people, Eric Bledsoe. <laughs> and Fox would have, you know, and not to say that Fox and Booker would have been gangbusters together or anything like that, but to me, you need to be in a very special place to break from best player available. And I think this is sometimes true with trades as well, where you think you're set at a position, you either turn something down or you don't negotiate or don't prioritize something else and, and, and go in that direction. I, I really applaud Kobe Altman and the Cavs front office for not doing that. I liked a lot more. I like Colin Sexton a lot more in the second half of the year than I did in the first half where I thought he was a disaster. Hope that second half is what holds. But the parts of it that are important, one, you're betting on your board. And I think that's usually a good thing to do because if you think Darius Garland is a lot better than the other guys on, on, on the table, then as long as you're right, you're good, it's going to work out fine because if Garland is good, then you either keep him and uh, you either keep both those guys or you keep one of them to move the other one for something of value. And if you think another player prospect is worse, but then don't, don't take them unless there's something very specific there. And there is another example of that in this division, which is pretty fascinating, and that's Goga Batate for the Indiana Pacers. And he, the translations really like him. Some of the people I know, like I've talked with Sam Vecini about him, really like the film on Batate. But it's also a fascinating bet. We talked about how Indiana, you know, the question of who's going to play forward, who can defend all these players for them. And it's true that somebody like Seku wasn't on the board. And, I mean, to me, if, if Indiana could have moved up to get him, that would have been huge. But they're making a bet on their evaluation and their board, too. And I wonder how that's going to work out. So with Goga and just generally in team needs, I think teams get this wrong a lot, too. And I think sometimes we do when we talk about it. Goga's probably not going to be ready to contribute positively to an NBA team for a couple of years. Right. So, no, he does not fit what the Pacers need right now, but we can look ahead a little bit to what they might need then, by then, right? Maybe Miles Turner and Sabonis won't still be there. That's why I, I'm with Nate 100% that the, uh, the Darius Garland pick is so fascinating because the Cavaliers really have like a, a prime-looking-ish, at least probably in their minds, prospect at only one position, and it's point guard. And so... When the Cavaliers are ready to win, that's when, at one point, they probably would have been projecting Colin Sexton to be their point guard. Now it's Darius Garland's in that mix, too. And so it's it's the complete overlap of the timelines, too, where Indiana doesn't have that. Yeah, also you can say that maybe either Turner or Sabonis isn't going to be on this team in a couple of years. I mean, I think even if you extend Sabonis and try to play him at, at the four, if that doesn't work out, then it is kind of tough to be paying as much money as they're paying to Turner and as much money as they're paying us to Devonis for one position. And, and Bataze could potentially provide them with some cheap labor in a couple of years. And they also don't really have anyone else at backup center right now, too. I mean, you imagine Sabonis will play, but in, in uh, a lot of backup center as well. But in the case of uh, any kind of an injury, you know, maybe, I think Bataze could have a significant role this year if he proves up to it. He's at least played you know, at a high uh, professional level overseas. Dan, any other moves that stand out to you? Well, so Malcolm Brogdon's the big one and uh, my very clear, like, unbiased choice. I've thought so much time about that one, and 
but my bias choice we have not talked about, uh, which is the Cavaliers hiring John Beeline. Uh, and even beyond my Michigan bias, I find it very interesting. He's the oldest uh, first-time non-interim NBA head coach ever. I, he was 66 when he was hired. And like the guys who are even closest in recent years uh, in age, David Blatt with the Cavs, Mike Dunlap with the Bobcats, Lionel Hollins with the Grizzlies, they're all more than a decade younger. I mean, John Beeline has coached four decades as a college head coach, and now he's just starting in the NBA. How that'll turn out, I'm fascinated by. I don't mind going for someone from the college ranks. I mean, there are a few guys like that who have had success, especially the ones who are a little bit more innovative. Uh, and Beeline certainly has that reputation offensively. But the thing to me is, you mentioned the age, you'd be hard-pressed to, you mentioned that as a first-time head coach, but you'd be hard-pressed to find any head coach who was an effective coach past the age uh, of his late 60s. I mean, I think Hubie Brown might have been like early 70s on some of those Memphis teams. You know, And Greg Popovich is getting up there now. Maybe we'll find out with him if he can maintain effectiveness. But really, I think you're probably uh, projecting it accurately to say, yeah, you know, 70 years old is about the latest you can coach. Now, you know, everybody's doing everything later these days, so maybe that's outdated. But this is a team that isn't ready to win right now. So when the Celtics went with Brad Stevens, he was really young. They gave him a six-year deal at the beginning of their rebuild, which didn't last as long as they thought it would. Uh, but the idea here is, you know, this team is so far away two, three years from now, when these guys might be finally ready to turn the corner and get back into the playoffs, you know, beeline might be nearing the, the end already. So, uh, you know, I don't see the upside with this movie. You don't talk about coaching upside very often, but the idea, if you bring in a college coach, it's like, Hey, maybe this guy works out and he's our coach for 10 years. I mean, that just is very unlikely to happen given beelines age. Yeah, I don't think that, I mean, I, for the Cavs' sake, I hope that wasn't what they're assuming is that they hired their next 10-year coach. But if you had to just project the number of years, whoever the Cavs hired this offseason would be their coach. Like, the number would probably be about three. Like, that'd be the yeah. best guess. And so get somebody yeah. who can help you now. And maybe that's Beeline, maybe it's not. And that's why I'm so interested by well, this. Well, but this is this is how I see it, Dan. Every time you hire a coach, it's a bite at the apple to find that really awesome coach who's going to be there for a long time and really help you build a program, you know, who could be there for seven or eight or, or 10 years. I know that that's statistically very unlikely to work out that way, but this move has a 0% chance of getting you a coach who's going to be there for seven or 10 years or, or not 0%, but, but, but I mean, very it, even yeah. lower. There's also the challenge of, can you as a zero time NBA head coach build like the kind of culture that can persist past you with maybe like a long-term assistant? Because I don't even think he has the time to do that. So maybe just maybe if there's an assistant on the staff who has a similar philosophy and Beeline really speaks to especially Sexton and Darius Garland and it can work out. And so then it, it basically is a continuation of the same administration or something similar. That could be a way that it works. But it's not like Beeline has those tentacles within the coaching ranks in terms of like, it seems like a lot of his staff is new. And I, that's a good thing. And I'm, I'm you know, I've heard some positive things about members of his staff, but I wonder about that as well, of the idea of, well, maybe it's not Beeline that's the head of the next step, but it's something that this that is a direct consequence of this decision. And that's a little harder to see here because of his age and his inexperience in the league. Well, I think we're losing a little bit how it translates to players. On the coaching staff and himself and the head coaching position, I'm with you. If he can help the Cavaliers win sooner than you'd expect, it's a good hire. If he can help some of these younger players develop – 
it's a good hire. And I think especially with winning, I'm a big believer that winning creates flexibility. So we see this Cavs roster uh, with some overpaid players. Uh, some of the contracts will come off of soon, but it's, it's a real lacking roster in a lot of ways. When teams do well, their players hold more trade value. It's easier to maneuver. And so if he helps them win more in the next few years and develop players, I, I think it's a good hire, even if I, I agree with your point, Nate. it's a good one that you have only so many chances to hire somebody who can be there a long time. The Cavs essentially chose not to do that, but there could still be good value from this. If it works out, it's just a little bit of a, a tighter window, which is again, part of the reason I'm intrigued by it. Plenty more to talk about with Dan and Nate, but first a message from betonline.ag. We are now two weeks through the NFL season, and that means the hashtag Sportsnet challenge is going strong. I'm still doing very well. Got four out of five this week, so I, I, I lost my perfect run, which I'm pretty disappointed in. Thank you, Carolina Panthers, but still doing very well. You can keep tabs on that at podcast1sportsnet.com. See how I'm doing in the rankings and all of your other favorite hosts in this wonderful podcast network. And you should also check out betonline.ag. It is a great time to check it out because not only do you have loaded NFL slates every single week, but also college football is getting in full force. Michigan at Wisconsin, Notre Dame at Georgia, Utah at SC this coming week. So a lot to be excited about. And if it's a game that you're going to watch anyway and you want to be more excited, or if you think you know something that's going on, you have a read on maybe how good a backup quarterback is going to be or just how a certain team is playing. You can check that out, of course, at betonline.ag. And they have in-game betting, which is awesome too if you get a read throughout a game. And whatever way you want to engage with it, use the pod- the promo code PODCAST1. And that does a couple things. One, it gives you a 50% sign-up bonus, which is fantastic. And two, it tells them you came from us, and that will, which really does help us out. We appreciate it. So if you want to try it out, and I think it's a great thing to do, betonline.ag, take advantage of that awesome bonus for signing up for a free account. Use the Podcast One promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. Lots of great stuff going on. You can check it out at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. The other moves that I wanted to talk about was what Chicago did, um, and the, I really liked how their draft turned out. They were fortunate that Kobe White fell to them. It looked to me like they were going to get completely hosed by Minnesota, jumping Phoenix in the draft, swapping spots with Phoenix at the cost of Dario Sharch. Kobe White made a ton of sense there. They don't have a point guard of the future, and they took Jared Culver instead. Chicago really did benefit from that. Then Gafford, I think, is looking good as a second-round pick. They're, they have op- The Bulls have options at backup center, but it's good to have a young one who's under contract for a couple of years and then has restricted rights at the end of it. So that's the first component. But then the second one was I thought they did really, really well in free agency, had less cap space than they were originally going to because of the auto porter trade during the season. I think that worked out reasonably well, the bet that their cap space was less valuable. But still getting Thad Young and Sadoransky on reasonable contracts for three years was good enough. But then getting in that Young's case, a non-guaranteed contract, and then in Sadoransky's case, a light partial guarantee on that third year, so 21-22, I think that looks really good because it makes them deeper. And yeah, it's very possible that neither of those guys starts at a given point in time, depending on what Boylan and the, and the front office wants to do, especially at point guard. But they can add depth to the rotation, add competence to the rotation, and be a part of, a, of, a, of this Chicago team. I yeah, kind of look up. Oh, go yeah, ahead. Sorry. I was scared. I kind of look at the Bulls on uh, two tracks, you know, the short term and the long term. Uh, in the short term, am I certain that they're going to make the playoffs during Thaddeus Young's contract? No. Am I certain that they're going to become a, a good team with Kobe White contributing? No. 
But I think both of those things have a decent shot to work out. And like you were saying, at the draft slot where they could get Kobe White and at the price they have to pay Thaddeus Young, I like both of those bets to help this team in the short and long term. And I like the Sadoransky uh, signing to maybe help with both. Same with uh, acquiring Otto Porter last season. Yeah, and I think they both of those guys do have some limitations in that they're not the greatest shooters, but they really help them get a lot better defensively, and Young in particular. And they're helped by the fact that Carter and Markkanen, at least when they're fully formed, seem to have some versatility. So those guys can be pretty decent fits next to Young, who has more of an inside-oriented game uh, on offense, but then uh, can give them a lot more defensively give them some switchability finally and so to have young and Otto porter now both guys you know who are not stars but considering the shape that their defense on the wing was in uh a year ago today you know that's a pretty significant upgrade and carter if he can take a step forward defensively sataransky i mean they've actually got some guys now where they could even conceivably be an average or above average defensive team when you know they've had one of the worst defenses in basketball in the post-Butler era. On a more basic point, something that getting Sadoransky and Thaddeus Young helps do is put the Bulls in a better place in terms of giving competent NBA players a significant portion of their minutes. I mean, last year, Shaq Harrison, and I like Shaq Harrison, and he, he might end up making the, this team, we don't know exactly with how the 15th roster spot is going to break out, but remember how many minutes they gave to like Ill, like weird fits or poor fits. Antonio Blakeney played over 800 minutes last year. Hutchison played 900 minutes. Selden played 1,000. And Archie Diacono played 2,000 minutes for this team <laughs> last year. Now, it's not to say that Kobe White, especially if he's getting a significant role, is going to be dramatically better than those guys young point guards, especially one-and-done point guards in their rookie year, have that problem. But the competence of Sato and Thaddeus Young, especially on top of all these players, it gives them depth in the case of injury and foul trouble, but it also just sops up a lot of those minutes and will put them in a much better place overall. That's a reason I like the Thad, Young, and Sadoransky signing so much in tandem, because if you didn't sign Sadoransky and are basically just handing the starting point guard job to Kobe White, uh, as a rookie, then you're pretty much just saying, ah, there's almost no way we'll be good enough to do anything during Thad Young's first year under contract. Now, if everything comes together, there's a chance this team can make the playoffs uh, with Sadoransky providing a, a higher floor at point guard. The next question in this is, is kind of an interesting one in this division. I don't think it's necessarily going to be too contentious, but start with Dan. Who do you think is the best newcomer to his team in this division? Uh, I think it's Malcolm Brogdon, which is why we spent so much time talking about him. Yeah, I, I, I could see, you know, based on injury or something else, another player having a really good year, but I think he's the he's the pretty cool leader, especially when you consider that a couple of the teams in this division just didn't really add that many newcomers. Like, you know, the maybe Wes Matthews or somebody has a great year, or, you know, the Chicago guys can break out, but there aren't that, I guess maybe Derrick Rose ends up being an option if he becomes the full-time starter there. I mean, to me, Thad Young is, is probably the, the second uh, yeah. choice. Yeah, yeah I think there's so I think there's an argument in terms of just how they played last year that Young was better than Brogdon, certainly during the regular season. I mean, I, I thought he was a, an all-defense level contributor uh, uh, and you know certainly has the offensive limitations. Brogdon is more of a two-way game. Uh, when you consider the age, you might say, though, uh, Brogdon probably will contribute the most. And certainly there are uh, some rookies that we expect to have an impact, but because rookies just generally are terrible, you know, they're probably not going to be in in this discussion. 
Then the last question of the offseason part of this is the rookie that you are most excited to see, not who you think is going to be best because most rookies are negative value players because that's the way this works, but the rookie that you are most excited to see in an NBA uniform this 2019-20 season. Well, I, we talked about Garland. I think he, he's a, the clear answer for me. Uh, White, I, I think, is very competent, but I, I don't think he has as much of an excitement factor as Garland with uh, some of his uh, ball handling and shooting wizardry. Um, but you know, the, the other guy we haven't talked about at all who you know, I, I want to see how he looks is Seiko Dumbuya, who on paper is one of the youngest players drafted in the one-and-done era. His birthday is December 23rd uh, listed, although you know, I did hear in talking to some executives thoughts that it, he may not be, in fact, that young. But I, I, he's someone that I really liked, and he went lower than some of the other wings who are projected to be in his range, and maybe he can finally solve this open sword that the Pistons have had at the three for some time. Uh, and, you know, I don't think anyone's projecting him to be a superstar, but if he can just show some potential on both ends, shooting the ball, getting out in transition and defending, you know, that could be a big step forward for the Pistons' long-term future to have an option at that position finally. You know, looking at, I guess I was fairly high on some of these guys drafted in this division. You know, I had Garland third, I had Kobe White fifth, I had Dumbuya seventh. I really don't expect much from Dumbuya next season. Uh, I just liked his raw tools, how young he is. You know, I think there's something to develop. It's a weak draft. I just didn't, a weak looking draft, who knows how it'll actually turn out. Uh, I just don't really expect much from him. So for me, it's also Darius Garland. Um, and I think for the three of us, there's a little degree of, are we going to be right? Because not many people had him over R.J. Barrett. All three of us did. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I'm curious. Also, we barely got to see him last year. And I, in all honesty, I probably ranked him higher in part because of that, because I saw fewer of his flaws. And so I'm curious to see more of them. It's a weird similarity that a lot of the most interesting div- rookies in this division either didn't play or barely played in summer league. I mean, Seku played very briefly. Garland didn't play at all. Batadze didn't play at all. He Batadze would be fourth on my list. That would go Garland, Seku, Kobe White, partially because we know more about Kobe White than we do about Seku, and then Batadze. And that, you know, sometimes you, the Summer League makes you more excited. That certainly has happened in the past, and you want to see if that player can continue it. But especially with Garland, because of the small sample sizes Dan brought up, but also just the, the some of the tools that he brought, you know, with the, the step back that he had so much confidence in, and the importance of point guard, especially a point guard who can shoot in the modern NBA, you know, he could just be a huge piece for them. And it also, Garland is different because I'm totally confident, like with Kobe White, that he's going to get the opportunity to play. So that's even more exciting. It's not watching a five-minute stretch and where Sekou's by touches the ball once and just seeing, oh, can he move on the floor? How, is he, how are his feet doing? All those sorts of things. Garland's going to have the ball in his hands all the time. And while you don't want to read too much into what a young player does in their rookie year, especially a young point guard, there's going to be a lot to evaluate, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, two other guys I want to mention. Uh, Dylan Windler for, uh, for the Cavs' late first-round pick. I think there's a decent chance he'll be better next year than some of the guys we've already talked about. Uh, just he, he's he's going to get some tick, though, for sure this yeah, year. Yeah. Um, you know, he's kind of a good shooter, reads the floor well. There might be too big of an athleticism jump for him, but if he can hold up, he could be okay. Uh, and then I'm pretty intrigued by um, Kevin Porter Jr. I had him 11th on my board. Uh, he he looks like when he plays, like he could become a star. He's not there yet. That's why he slipped all the way to the end of the first round. There's maturity issues, all of that. 
but there's some raw skill here in the most exciting ways. Cleveland will be a fun clarifying team in terms <laughs> of league pass because they're going to lose a ton of games, but there there are plenty of reasons to be interested in watching them. Yeah, and it'd be nice if they're actually watchable this year. I mean, there's there's there seem to be fewer unwatchable teams overall this year, not just in this division. Uh, but we say that all the time, and then the injuries hit, and, and yeah. teams get unwatchable. Yeah, in terms of on paper, I think we're looking for a pretty good year. It'll be fascinating to see how the Knicks fit in with that, because I think <laughs> they'll be a, they'll be one of those teams that Nate and I disagree on, where I'll enjoy the train wreck a little bit more than he does. <laughs> but yeah, that that could end up being a challenge. Yeah, and I mean, you could talk about you know a team like Memphis, who has a lot of young guys, and there could be some train wrecky elements to it, but there's a lot more to watch and to keep an eye on. And so for those of us who watch all 30 teams pretty regularly, I'm pretty juiced about that. And, you know, Chicago is going to be a whole lot more watchable to me this year than they were last year, especially if they step it up on defense. And that's as good a transition as any into the regular season preview portion of this. We could start with Nate. In terms of ranking these teams one to five, I think it's best to use projected regular season record. But if you want to use a different criteria, feel free. Yeah, you know, I haven't thought that hard about the Pistons yet. I mean, clearly the Bucks are number one. I think we're all going to agree there. I could see Pistons... Pacers, and maybe even Bulls all being in any order, two through four. Right now, my, I think I'll play it kind of conservative. Well, I guess this isn't playing it conservative. I think the Pistons look a little bit better to me than the Pacers right now. Um, you know, so much depends uh, on Oladipo and Griffin's health, of course. Uh, so I'd go Pistons two, Pacers three, and Bulls four. But again, with the caveat that I haven't really like sat down and done my shows uh, on the Pistons and Bulls yet to where I really start thinking about it. And, you know, like with the Pacers, I was higher on them. And then I really started going through it. I'm like, eh, you know, I'm, I'm more concerned about these guys than I thought. And then Cavs, Cavs uh, bring up the rear by quite some bit. I also have, you know, Bucks clearly number one, Cavs clearly number five. And I also think it's close between the middle three teams. Uh, I took the a little more conservative answer of Pacers, Pistons, then Bulls. I think that's a little more with the conventional wisdom, but I really wouldn't be surprised if the Pistons were better than the Pacers, but I also wouldn't be surprised if they fell behind the Bulls. How much upside do you think? Do you guys think the Bulls have? Like, if everything goes right for them this year, where do you see it ending up for them? Like, 41 wins? Well, I was going to say low 40s. I think that might even be pushing it a little bit because I could easily see. So last year, Chicago, and you know, you don't want to anchor too much on a prior season, especially with the turnover they had. They were 25th in defense and 29th in offense. So I think it's totally possible that they end up around league average on defense, which would be pretty amazing when you consider that there's probably starting two young bigs and then maybe starting a rookie point guard, depending on how they want to structure Sato and, and White. And Zach Levine is still a part of their defense. But it seems like a lot for me to say that they'll be top half on offense. So for me, let's say it's something like 18th on offense, 15th on defense. That's to me, especially when you consider that those teams often struggle in close games just because they can't get a bucket when they have to, unless Zach Levine just happens to hit those pull-ups. I'm guessing that's more like a high 30s team, which would be a huge improvement. They won 22 last year, but I could see them having a very positive year that still is not super in the playoff mix. Yeah, Levine and Marketing will have to blow up to to reach that uh, that level that I'm talking about. And Carter, who was a uh, you know really not good enough offensively last year, is another guy who's going to have to really take a step forward with his shooting and versatility, finishing around the basket. So that, and then. 
injuries, you know, if anything happens to Otto Porter, they're in big, big trouble also. So, cause, cause they have no depth behind him whatsoever. So I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, yeah. What were you gonna say, Dan? I was gonna say last year they were seven and eight with Otto Porter, uh, which small sample, varying levels of competition. I get all that, but he was so important to them because they had no depth there, uh, to have him, all of a sudden, they look like a decent team with him. Not good, but decent. And then these offseason upgrades, these young players getting better. That's why I was a little more optimistic with the best case. I mean, I'm going to project them somewhere in the 30s, I think. But the reasonable best case scenario, I do think, is in the low 40s. Yeah, I mean, it is important to remember how bad of a starting point they're coming from. And yeah, I mean, every one of the, you know, there's a bunch of teams. The Wolves with Covington, the Suns when they had all their guys together, like oh this twelve game <laughs> stretch, we were actually pretty competent here. It's like all right, well, yeah, th- that's like fully healthy. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna compare that to every other team that's fully healthy, then you right. know that, that's a, a different story, right? So so yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, well, that's I, why. I want to... Do you remember? Were the bull? I mean, so I just went games Otto Porter played, not even like with him on the court, so that we're not like weighing it toward the best lineups or anything. Do you remember were the Bulls generally healthy when Otto Porter was playing for them? Like I, I'm not sure if I remember. Yeah, it was the the post trade deadline. Yeah, uh, Markkinen had a a really good February. So my that's when everybody that was, was like back. that was like his best month. Uh, that really you know was it was somewhat of a disappointing season for him outside of I think January and February. Um, so he was playing really well. They didn't have Carter. I think he had gone down already at, as of that point. So, and, and the Bulls always seem to have injuries too, which I don't know whether that's a uh, a organizational problem or a bad luck. These were the players on the roster problem, but it, that's uh, always got to kind of be priced in a little bit with these guys too. One thing we haven't really talked about with them is their coach, <laughs> who I think improved a lot during the season uh, from a well, very very low point well, to he, the point he, where uh, I thought they might have to fire him in from Vegas. the mutiny. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but he became like he got along well enough to keep his job and, and get an extension. Yeah, so, uh, Otto, well, I think he got Otto, the extension first. I, I think yes, yeah, fair <laughs> point. Otto Porter did not play with Wendell Carter, at least not in the uh, from what I could tell from Clean the Glass. The most commonly used lineup with Porter on the floor was Dunn, Levine, Porter, Marketing, and Robin Lopez, who is now a member of the Milwaukee Bucks. A move we haven't talked about at all at, to this point, and. They could use a different point guard than that, but you know that's a decent proxy. And that lineup was actually pretty well underwater because they couldn't defend it all. But then the Archidiacono subbed in one did a lot better, partially because they had an unsustainably good defense in 107 possessions. I just realized I should give my own. And so, like you guys, Bucks, Bucks at the top, Cavs at the bottom. That's pretty easy. Then I have the Bulls four. I think that's the next easiest decision, just because. It's entirely possible that the Pacers or, or Pistons have a have a rough season, but in terms of expected value, I'd have them meaningfully lower. Pistons Pacers is more challenging than you would th- than one would think, considering the margin between those two teams record wise last year. Because I mean, Oladipo was hurt right now. Blake Griffin is not hurt right now, and those guys are both incredibly important. I'm going to go with the Pacers, though. I think that their their depth is you know even if Oladipo is missing time, they ha- they have a lot of guys that I think can play. And both coaches have done a nice job. I think McMillan, you know, deserves credit for what he did last year. Dwayne Casey continues to, you know, I think his guys usually play above their heads on defense, so that's a good sign. And so I'll go, I'll go Pacers there, and then we can move on to the next question, which is, how many teams from this division make the playoffs? Oh, this is the one I always forget to do the preparation on ahead of time. <laughs> let, let me uh, let me catch up to it here in a second. So I, I'll say three. Uh, you know, the Bucks are basically a lock. 
I think the Cavs are not quite zero, but close enough. And then uh, two of the Pacers, Pistons, Bulls, uh, with the odds decreasing throughout them. But, uh, you know, I, I think the answer is somewhere between two and three. But, I, you know, but I think it's above two and a half, so I'll round to three. Yeah, I, I think that seems right. I think I'd probably have Detroit and Indiana favored to be in there. And if one of them falls off, perhaps the Bulls would be the team that, that replaces them. I mean, I'm not particularly high on the Magic right now. Um, and let's see. So who do we have in right now? Bucks, Sixers, Celtics. I think we'd all agree that they would probably be in there. Um, yep. I think Raptors are probably looking like the number four to me right now. I think they just have enough of a formula defensively and the, a track record of playing without Kawhi Leonard with this group last year. They were pretty successful. Yep. Um, so that's four. And then who would you say is five? Maybe the Heat, the Magic, uh, Nets. Yeah. Heat, uh, Magic, Nets, and then these uh, middling central teams. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I guess you're probably uh, between Heat, Magic, Nets, and then Pistons and Pacers. So that's five teams for four slots. I think the Bulls are in that mix. I mean, if, we, if we're saying how close they are within the central, why not throw them in there in that mix, too? Yeah, I, I haven't. I don't know if I am quite saying that yet, but okay. yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, so I'm actually. Oof. Yeah, between uh, those are some uninspiring <laughs> right. teams. <laughs> teams right there. Yeah. So I mean, and, and I think the lesson of the last couple of years is when the bar is so low to get into the playoffs at the bottom of the conference that you can see some surprise teams like the Magic last year because, hey, you could just get to 500. You're actually like well within the playoff picture. Um, and we'll see what happens with the Nets too, and, and how much Kyrie helps them. And they've they've got a lot of newcomers uh, as well. Maybe to see whether KD comes back at the end of the year and how effective he is uh, as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I would have like Pistons and Pacers both around, kind of fighting for the eighth seed. So, I think I will ultimately go with three as well. You know, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm still. Uh, it's still a struggle between them and the and the Magic and uh, Nets and Heat. I think those guys, those teams are all. I would maybe have the Nets and the Heat a little bit above, uh, but again, not much. You know, I could see those teams being in the forty-five win range, and then some of those other teams in like the 42, 41 win range. I think I'm going to go two over three because of that morass at the kind of the, the below the halfway point in the Eastern Conference. The two teams that I'm most worried about from a health perspective are the Pacers and the Pistons. You know, then it's true that an injury would sidetrack the Heat, an injury would sidetrack track the Magic and all that, but I think those teams have a little bit more of a track record. And Kenny Atkinson's one hell of a coach, which which makes me feel a little bit more confident about the Nets. And they made the playoffs last year and added some added some pieces. Lost, of course, lost some pieces. But my instinct is if I if I have to make a bet on on that kind of thing, I'm going to make a bet on on teams like the like the Magic and the Heat over not necessarily the Pacers, but more of the Pistons than anything else. But it is a close call, and it's really two than three or three than two. And I would be surprised if we saw four or one. So that's really the way that this works out. And actually, before we get to breakout players, because there's there's some guys that I want to talk about there, one other kind of big lingering thing that we haven't talked about at all in this podcast that is every once in a while it gets in my head and then I just can't really think about anything else is Andre Drummond's $28.8 million player option for next year. And we've talked about all of us in writing and in podcasts about how terrible the 2020 free agent class is and happening to have 
Danon, who's more connected with the Pistons than other teams, though he's obviously well-versed in everybody. How are you feeling about that right now? I like Andre Drummond's attitude about it, which seems to be, I'm going to opt out. And he can always change his mind later, but we, we've talked about contract year motivations on this show. It's a real thing, and so if he has that mindset, I think that's good for him, good for the Pistons. I don't know what it'll be when he gets to the actual decision, but he gives himself the best chance uh, to make more money to put himself in whatever situation, whether staying in Detroit or leaving, to get whatever he wants by taking this approach. Uh, so I do expect him. That's part of the reason I'm a little more bullish on the Pistons this year, because I think he's going to come in with that contract, your mindset, be in shape, be motivated, be playing hard, and uh, I think that'll help him. Whether it's enough to get – I don't think he's going to get more a higher salary than that. That seems unlikely, though not impossible. Uh, but he might get enough where the quality of the deal, a long-term deal, makes sense to opt out. Yeah, I'm not sure where he would go outside of the Pistons. So, I mean, this does strike me as the, hey, opt out and we'll sign you <laughs> for four more years, a $25 million a year type of thing. That would be my prediction. Yeah, that's a that, – I think that would be mine as well, or opting in uh, would probably be a very close second. Uh, but him staying in Detroit one way or another. Uh, but I look at the Knicks maybe as a possibility uh, if they think he can yeah. be the first I, I think star on the, the 2021 plan, though. What about the Hawks? It would drive me a little crazy, but it wouldn't shock me. That wouldn't shock me either. Um, I think in some ways, and I don't know this, I think sometimes I get the vibe that Andre Drummond would like to be in a bigger market. Uh, not that he absolutely has to be, that he's going to force his way out. Uh, and so I don't know if the Knicks would be interested, but if they would, I think there'd be some appeal. Well, if he wants to be in one of the big markets, that's pretty much the only place to do it. I mean, because the other ones are all pretty spoken for at this point, unless they structure some sort of sign trade. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. In some ways he could fit in with the, I don't know what they would trade, but fit in with the Clippers. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Let, let's go on to breakout players. And uh, to reiterate for people, this is not becoming necessarily becoming stars. Victor Oladipo in this division is a good example of how hard and unlikely those sorts of jumps are. But just players who we'll be talking about differently if and when we do this podcast again in September of 2020 than we are talking about right now. Well, you have to look at uh, the Chicago duo of Levine and Markkinen. Uh, they're going to have all they can eat as far as shot creation this year. Uh, Markkinen in particular is... You know, has had some flashes. He's had you know months of averaging twenty and ten, but it had to be able to put it all together. Hasn't quite been the shooter that would have been a hope. Hasn't quite shown the versatility to his offensive game that makes you think he's a, a future superstar, a future all star necessarily. But uh, he's they're going to be really relying on him to create offense. And Levine, I mean, he took a major step forward, uh, and we'll see whether in a better defensive system which he just hasn't been in his career he can be a little bit better uh, on defense i think if he could do that you know he was scoring at a league average rate pretty high usage he's working on his passing trying to cut down his turnovers this year uh so his getting to the basket was really a revelation for him last year so those are the two that pop out to me on chicago and and i'll have a couple other candidates uh, in a second if someone else wants to go I also have somebody on the Bulls. Uh, it's neither of those two. I think it's uh, Tomas Sadoransky. I really liked how he played in Washington. I don't think the Wizards ever had enough confidence in him. Uh, he avoids mistakes. You know, he's not going to be the superstar. He does. I don't think he has that kind of upside. Uh, he takes care of the ball. 
He doesn't take bad shots. He's got a nice floater. He can shoot from distance, though maybe not on quite a high enough volume of attempts that you want to see. Uh, but maybe he gets more aggressive, gets more confident as the Bulls ask more of him. He could be starting there. And every so often, he has like an above-the-rim play that reminds you, yeah, he's got a lot of athleticism too and I'm not sure how he blends his athleticism with the way he plays to make it effective but I do think there's some potential there and even if he's just kind of doing what he had quietly been doing in Washington but can carry that into a larger role I think that would make him a breakout player and on its own right yeah I like the Sato pick he's impressed me at various moments in Washington I think they're really going to miss him and the functional trade of backup guards there what we'll see actually they might both start in terms of or not the, in, in terms of this division, Ish Smith going from Detroit to Washington and then Sato going from Washington to Chicago. I'm interested in that. One that I wanted to bring up, I don't know exactly who it's going to be, but whoever ends up being the Detroit like two-guard of the present and future, I've liked Luke Kennard for a long time, and I think that he could end up being a nice fit. Comfortable shooter, did a little bit more with the ball in his hands at various moments in his rookie and sophomore years. I've, I've liked Tony Snell for a while, too. I think that he you know he's gotten in the doghouse a couple of different times, and I I wish that wouldn't have happened. I would love to see it be Christian Wood, talented player. (laughs) Detroit needs a backup five, and he's a a nice fit. I I would rather have, you know, I feel more confident in Christian Wood than I do in Thon Maker at this point in their respective careers, though Thon has a fully guaranteed contract, Christian Wood does not. But I could see the Canard, you know, that shine, instead of going to him, it could go to Tony Snell, but it could also go to Bruce Brown or Kyrie Thomas or Svi, who I also continue to like. But somebody, it seems like, is going to have to go in there, even though Langston Galway played a ton last year. Yeah, I think most likely is Snell starting at small forward, uh, Brown starting at shooting guard, but Kennard getting uh, more minutes than Brown. I guess another guy you could look at is Brogdon, just from a counting stats standpoint in particular. I mean, he's going to be asked to do a ton. We'll see whether he's up for it, whether he can maintain the efficiency, whether he can uh, improve his shooting off the bounce to really take a step forward, but he's certainly going to have every opportunity. I wonder about Cleveland, just whether somebody will break out. But one of one of the big questions with them is just what happens with all their veterans on expiring contracts? Jordan Clarkson, Tristan Thompson, probably the most likely to relocate of those. Maybe Cleveland uses it as a mechanism to take on a longer term contract and getting an asset. But especially Tristan Thompson, like I think he's so much better than what he did last year. And some of it might just be the malaise of being on a team this bad or dealing with injuries, which he did a lot of last year. But I could just see him having a real bounce back here. So that's not the same thing as a breakout candidate. But we, we could be talking about it more like we did two years ago than we did last during most of last year. Yeah, I think there's some potential for that. He's also uh, been declining for a few years. Uh, I don't know. A big man... Big man, he's going to turn 29 late in next season, so he's 28 now. I, I do think he'll be better next year if he's healthier and all that, but I do think there's a chance that maybe he's just on the downward slope. T.J. Warren is also another one for me of whether he can, if he can really solidify shooting the ball at the level he showed in Phoenix last year. He, we're talking about him uh, as a totally different player, you know, he really is kind of this enigma at the moment. Spe- speaking of enigmas, I, I agree with Jeremy you. Lamb. <laughs> I mean, I could see him having a nice year as well. I think I think Lamb is better suited as a two than a three. And once Oladipo is back a little bit more, Lamb might be playing a little bit out of position. But I don't think that's as big a deal in the new look Eastern Conference as it would be. And also the idea that teams don't have to be as 
scared of wings and all that during the regular season just because of how the league is structured. But I could see Liam having a nice year too. Um, maybe Brook Lopez doing what he did last year just for a second year will get him the recognition he deserved for what was a great breakout year. Hey, he's not off to a great start after the World Cup. No. Um, I don't, us- I, I don't yeah, usually funny. do this because I, yeah. I, I like to be positive with this, but are there any kind of clear-cut decline candidates for you guys? Like somebody who this might be the year that, the, that they go off the table? I don't really see that many unless it's health-related, like something like Blake. But Blake was so damn awesome last year. I, I don't think it's going to happen. But And, I mean, a lot of these teams are a little bit older. I worry about it with George Hill, but again, it's, the question is, what is the baseline there? Because I don't think he'll be as good as he was in the playoffs, but he's been he's had some rough moments over the last couple of years. You know, this could uh, Derek Rose. I think there's a lot of room for that there. I'm not saying he will. I'm not predicting it, but there's a lot of room for him to fall way off because he had one good year in the last several because he shot way better than he has ever. Yeah, and, and he was healthier. Was, even that was an injury plagued campaign as well. I mean, Marquise Morris, too, coming off the injury, he is like, I'm not taking for granted that he's going to remain the contributor people think he will be. Uh, yeah. can, can I say Joe Johnson? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's Basically, not going to be every, nearly as good as he was in the big the Pistons, three. Everybody you've heard of who the Pistons signed for their bench uh, has this potential. Yeah, and maybe maybe Thad Young, despite the fact that I was really high on that signing, uh, and I think he is going to be good. 31, new system. Uh, maybe he can't have the defensive impact that he had in Indiana uh, with a little bit less talent uh, around him. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, they just can't really find a way to use him offensively with the shooting limitations. And he just kind of regresses into being a backup quality of player. I could see that happening. I'm not predicting it, but it's uh, certainly yeah, possible. Uh, it- like like Danny said, uh, I mean, maybe uh, just the same point of view of, I forgot what we were talking about earlier, the team that knew him the best, the Pacers, did not seem gung-ho about we've got to bring back Thad Young at any cost. What do they know about how he's aging? Yeah, that's possible. One other positive, a guy that we haven't brought up at all, Jetty Osman. I could see him having a nice year. Cleveland is going to have opportunities for whoever can earn them. I have no idea necessarily who that is going to be, but Osman, pending restricted free agent, could have a nice year. Yeah, well, Dan Dan Feldman didn't want to pay him in the mock rookie extension, so he he clearly doesn't think he's going to do anything this year. <laughs> I went I went from a very big Osman believer uh, early last season to a lot of my faith dwindling throughout the year. Maybe uh, maybe he'll bounce back, but yeah, he he looked like somebody who was playing because somebody had to play on that team. I wasn't. Yeah, Cle- Cleveland could throw impressed. out some pretty spectacular average age lineups late in this season if they're if they're kind of in the place that we think they're going to be. You know, if they're playing. <laughs> Well, granted, I guess Windler's a little bit older than some of those guys, but if they're playing Porter, Garland, Sexton, all of those guys were one and done within the last two years, and then they could go, I mean, at that point, they could have any number of young young bigs to potentially fill out those spots. Uh, do they have any young bigs well, but on they their could, team? At that point, they could, be, they could have gotten guys off the scrap right. paper, any number of things. Like, for me, if for whatever reason Christian Wood gets waived again, Cleveland would be a, a, a totally logical place for that to go, considering, I mean, Ante Zizic is really the only young big that they have, and he doesn't have Wood's upside. I'm just going to keep talking about Christian Wood. I feel like that's just the way to go. <laughs> I mean, he was written down on my breakout player yeah. list, uh, but also well, on my might-not-make-the-team list. So Yeah, yeah, make sure, make sure you get your chance to discuss him now for when he doesn't make the team you won't have a chance to talk <laughs> exactly. about anymore. Although, if he gets waived, he could get claimed again. Like, he could set... <laughs> I mean, I wonder what the record well, is for most person. Like, or those trades? No, yeah, those, yeah, that was that was a non guarantee getting trade. I'm talking about a guy claims. On yeah, one on, the, on one contract, how many times getting waived? That sounds like a Dan Feldman research project, doesn't it? 
No, it's not. If it happens. Yeah, you can't. Well, no, I, I would have no way of doing that one. You got to bait somebody else with that. You can you can use it to uh, distract <laughs> from all the awesome cheese that you're going to have to be uh, experiencing in the next few weeks. Well, what a great opportunity to build out my waivers database so that next time it comes up, I'll be able to give you an answer real quick. That's how I can do some of these because one time I was curious and just made this thing in Excel so I can do it the <laughs> next time too. Awesome. Uh, anything else in this division that you guys want to talk about? I'd just like to mention that Brandon Knight is still playing in the and NBA. And still in this division. <laughs> yeah he's back <laughs> i didn't even think about how many teams he's played for in this division uh we got to get him to chicago and indiana it very well could happen um i mean i think like the thing that i'm just gonna say is like cleveland has just become this absolute backwater i mean just nobody talks about the cleveland cavaliers now that lebron is gone i mean and and they less so even than the first time that he left. You know, then it was oh they're they're so terrible, and then they had all that lottery luck, and they had Kyrie after the first year. I mean, now there's just I mean Darius Garland is a, a guy who has potential, but we're probably you know, overrating him a little bit because this is a weak draft to just say hey here's a guy who has some potential, but you know he played five college games and you know wasn't really considered like a top five recruit going into there so the way i mean i i agree i thought he was looked pretty good compared to a lot of the guys and he's got more upside than a lot of the guys in that group but uh how it was that he wasn't really considered a top five pick and then played four games and became a top five pick is pretty interesting uh, I'd like to use this opportunity to scold the Cavaliers for how they handled LeBron's last year. And this is exactly why. Uh, I thought it was terrible, and maybe the Bucks are going to do the same thing to bring it back. I thought it was terrible that the Cavs didn't trade that Nets pick. Uh, they could have traded, it sounded like, for Paul George, but they were worried about both Paul George and LeBron leaving. And I just thought, you got a chance to win a title. you got to go after it. Like, who cares about being better prepared for the next era? So they hung on to that Nets pick. They got... Colin Sexton, who's no longer one year in, he's not even their top young point guard prospect. And they like, they, I wouldn't say they sacrificed LeBron's last year, but they definitely did not give themselves the best chance to win a championship. Also, they could be in a better position now, and it's still a terrible position. What difference does it make what position they're in now? Yeah, no, that's a great point, Dan. I totally agree with you. We're just like, they had, I mean, this is going to be like a five year rebuild for them. And I don't think that having Colin Sexton, and we'll see, maybe he breaks out and he ends up being worth it. Also, I mean, I guess it's worth noting too that uh, it wasn't clear for a lot of that period that that pick was going to be number eight. You know, I think it had a little bit more upside than that at the time. And, you know, if they're, or they could have won the lottery and that, you know, if they had Trey Young or Luka Doncic instead, you know, then you'd be saying it. It was worth it, right? I think number eight was probably the lowest that pick conceivably could have been at the time that they're trading him. So that is one important part of the story is that pick had, in theory, more upside than you know it ended up actually having. Well, for the same reason, it, it would have had a lot of trade value and could have made a real significant effect on their championship odds, LeBron's last year. Agreed. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. And some of those teams that struck out on high-level trade targets, and then never really used those resources to get somebody else. I was thinking about Toronto, or not Toronto, because um, obviously they did it. Boston, in the same <laughs> same vein, you know, that they, they didn't like the price. So that'll be interesting to watch, but that's enough for right now. Thank you guys so much for taking the time. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for having us. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Thanks again to Dan Feldman and Nate Duncan for taking the time to come on. You can read Dan at NBC's Pro Basketball Talk, and you can follow him on Twitter at Dan Feldman NBA. And you can listen to Nate on the Dunked On Basketball podcast, which often includes me, but less so right now because he's doing the team-by-team stuff with largely local experts, which is great. Did one with John Krasinski on the Wolves and Jay Michael on the Pacers that came out on Sunday night, which was really good. And there will be new ones throughout the upcoming weeks, some of which I will be involved in, but most of which I will not. And you can, of course, follow him at Nate Duncan NBA. Two more division podcasts to go through. Those might be the next two. I have a couple other things in mind, so it'll just depend on which things, which guests are available at a given point. And if you haven't listened to it yet, check out the Real Gym Radio that I did with Ben Taylor. A lot of fun. We had a meandering, fascinating conversation about a lot of different topics. That was last week's episode. Came out on Friday. So this is a pretty quick turnaround, but it's still available. Still just as timely as it was when it came out a few days ago. If you want to support the show, there are so many different things that you can do. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast, whatever you're choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. Totally understand if it's not. If you want to be super awesome, you can leave a review both places. As somebody who uses Overcast, that's something that I can understand very well. You can also spread the word however you see fit, social media, in person, whatever makes you happy. And subscribing and downloading every episode. That is particularly useful for a show like Real GM Radio because it does not have a specific date or time that it comes out. It's just when I have it ready. So subscribing means that it will pop into your podcast player whenever you're ready. So really do appreciate that. But the most important thing you can do with this show and any other that has them is check out our sponsors for this episode. That is betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus. And you can check out hashtag Sportsnet Challenge. I'm doing very well as of right now, which is pretty exciting. Did well last year too. And you can keep an eye on that just for your own amusement and you can engage with it however you see fit. If I win again, then I will be able to put out a a call and you can potentially get money in your bet online account for free, which is awesome. So we'll see if that can happen. Hopefully it will this coming week and many weeks in the future. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do it. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I try to respond when I can. I'm not, admittedly not great, but they pop into a specific place and I make it a goal that every day before I go to sleep, I read everything that's there because that is important to me. I don't want you wasting your time. So you are not. Nothing is falling on deaf ears that goes to that account, especially if it's something about this show. And that's why that that email account exists is really for that. So I don't know exactly what next week's going to be. Have a few irons in the fire. It just depends on guest availability and how everything squares up, but some pretty cool stuff coming down the pike of course. And my own writing is also coming down the pike. I just put the finishing touches on a piece today. And then depending on how quickly they want to roll stuff out, have another few that are coming up in the near future. So that's pretty exciting too. I've been happy to get back into writing, even though it was good to take some time off. So that is more than enough for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. (laughs) 